Hello, and welcome to the International Sonography Podcast, the podcast all about the occupation of diagnostic medical ultrasound all over the globe. I'm your host, Jamie Fujikawa. Hey everyone, welcome back to ISP episode two, part three of our talk with Joan Baker. We'll continue now. If you missed the first two portions of this talk, just go back and listen to parts one and two, and here we go with part three. Okay, so now we're going to get into where the, you mentioned the grandfathered in period around oh, yes. technical specialists mm-hmm. and once the registry examinations began to be required. So could you tell us about the transition um, and how the exams differed for those who were practicing before October 7th, 74, Six. and the ones, oh, October 6th, mm-hmm. that's right, the midnight date, Yes, and the ones who had not. And I yeah. know this involves Ralph, is it Ralph Cooley? Cooley, yes. Mm-hmm. Well... Ralph, Dr. Ralph Cruley was the director of CAHIA, or DAHIA, as it was really called, D-A-H-E-A. Mm-hmm. CAHIA was the council, and DAHIA was the staff. And he was responsible for making it possible for us to get the occupation and go through, jump through all the hoops. And one of those hoops he wouldn't concede on was the fact that a grandfathered person was just an automatic thing that everybody who was practicing and admitted to practicing that day got in, scot free, do nothing. He said we had to come up with something. And so what we came up with was that if you, and this is unusual because membership in societies is not normally considered equivalent to some type of certification. Mm-hmm. I mean, you not shouldn't be forced to pay your dues in order to pay your way to get to a certification, right? Yes. But you have to start somewhere, mm-hmm. and you have to have something that's going to guide you. So what we did was we said, okay, if you were a member of a- ASUTS on or before midnight on October the 6th, 1974, all you, what you had to do to become certified was take a hands-on practical exam. If you were not a member by that time and date, you had to take a written exam first, and then six months later, approximately, you would get to do the practical hands-on exam. So you had two parts. So that's a grandfathered clause was that you had to have that membership by that time and date to just be limited to a hands-on exam. A hands-on exam was no walk in the park. This was a sonographer who watched you scan and decided if you were good at scanning or minimum entrance requirement of scanning, and a physician who had a pack of films that they put up on the view box and you had to discuss. Was it subjective? Yes. Mm -hmm. Uh, Anything like designed like that is but then the physicians had board exams and they had orals and we just did the same thing yeah we kind of copied them yeah and the physicians that we got to volunteer their time on weekends to do this were very good and they weren't trying to trick anybody they weren't and you could always make a case for well i didn't pass because this physician did this or this sonographer thought i should be able to do that Um, And we had to take into account sometimes people were having to use equipment they weren't familiar with. And, you know, it wasn't like whiz-bang. It was, it was, had to have some things, flexibility in it. So there were some flexible parameters. However, I think it certified more competent physicians for having a 
uh, sonographers by having a hands-on requirement than later on when it just was not feasible to do that. Because of the number of people that were trained in. Yes, but we've, before we were got to there, we found out that machines broke down every Monday from after one of these exams and they would call in the repair and all this and there may or may not even be a need, it might be a service they ended up with, but the registry had to pay the bill and that got to be very expensive. Mm-hmm. And it just got numbers became too difficult and number of sites became too difficult to find. And so we went to an interim, instead of that exam, having films. And the films were, thank goodness we didn't have HIPAA, the films were shipped all over the country. With identifying information on them? Probably. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. And so what, what were the problems? So, so well, they were white inked out, but anybody could read it when there was a light behind it. Yes. And what were people's initial feelings about going from going the hands-on to the, to the films? Was that true? Well, the only people that did were the ones that failed because <laughs> the others <laughs> passed and they didn't have to do a repeat. <laughs> And to clarify, so these exams or certifications, was that under the umbrella at the ARDMS at that time, or had they not? You know, those were ARDMS exams. The very first exam was 12 of us who were the um, sonographer examiners in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, in 1975. In 1974, in Seattle, we held a norming exam. That meant that any physician or any sonographer who was there volunteered to go and take an exam and set the the bar. Yeah, and that's what you guys did, right? Yes, that was that's the what we did. Well, took them and then automatically and turned around. Examiners. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yes, we did. Fortunately, we all passed. I think. Now, obviously, the content is tremendously different in many ways, but what were the initial examinations like compared to the format of today? What were the pros and cons of how the examinations were done back then compared to how they're done now? I think the difference is competence, Mm -hmm. because actually, today, the exams are not Mm competency-based. But they are, back when you had to put a hands-on exam, that's a competency base. Yeah. And did those exams involve a a real patient, scanning on a real patient? Oh, yes. People had to volunteer or the local organizer had get some patients that they had done a week or two ago and say, hey, we got this exam going and you've got this pathology that's really interesting and would you be interested in coming and having these people scan you and you know most people actually when they're presented with that are kind of excited yeah uh, to do that and I can remember you know patients saying oh yes and um what sort of makeup should I wear you know well the makeup doesn't matter (laughs) it won't change your pathology hope not I mean, I think it's an interesting way because, you know, now we're, in, we're evaluated like that hands-on by our clinical instructors yes. in a way, but over a longer period of time and also in ways that they teach you is right to scan, which clinical instructors differ mm-hmm. in their approaches to, yes. to ultrasound. So I, I, it would be interesting. And also in that hands-on, you get to see how people use ergonomics, patient yes. care, you know, 
uh, use of cross-section anatomy, knobology. You get to assess. Yeah, and they were free to ask any questions they wanted. Yeah, they weren't tied to some questions. Yes, it was free for all, and um, you know, some were stricter than others, and that's where the subjectivity came in. Yeah, everybody was hoping not to get that that one sonographer or that one doctor who made it a little bit more challenging. In the article, when you were talking about developing the essentials of an accredited educational program, along with the Committee on Allied Health and Education and Accreditation, this was the first time I heard you mention the word sonographer instead of ultrasound technical specialist. Can you share the rationale behind the changes in verbiage at this time? Well, 1980 was Sandra Hagen, and was the president, and she brought up the issue of changing the name. The American, well, it was the American Society of Diagnostic Medical Sonographers, and she got rid of the word American because the Canadians didn't like it, even though it was the American continent, but they didn't like it. And so she got rid of that word, and we got the Society of Diagnostic Medical Sonographers. Mm-hmm. And it later became sonography because of um, Dr. Rebecca Hall from uh, New Mexico, and mm-hmm. she was a phys- not a physician, a PhD in ana- sonographer mm-hmm. in anatomy, I think. Mm-hmm. And um, she wanted it broadened mm-hmm. beyond the person that makes the graph with sound Mm -hmm. to the profession of sonography. So that's how it changed. Tell me about Mark, and I want to say his name right. Lapioca. Lapioca, early leadership role as the chairman of the Joint Review Committee on Mm -hmm. Education and Diagnostic Medical Sonography. A great physician, a radiologist from uh, Pennsylvania, um, Philadelphia. And um, he had experience with the X-ray people as and their joint review body and its founding. And so he brought with him a lot of papers that we didn't have to recreate. You know, we didn't have to recreate the wheel. And he was a very well-respected and very delightful person to work with. And he became our first chair. He was on the JRC DMS, not from the get-go, um, but long enough for everybody to get to know him. He was great. That's great. And there was a collaboration and shared secretarial support between the JRC on Education for Radiology Technology and the Diagnostic Medical Ultrasound. Yes. Now, that wasn't Mark. That was Marilyn Fay. Okay. She was the director of the AS um, JRC ERT. And she was very important for getting the yes, foot in the door. She, yeah, we, yes, but she she also came with a lot of paperwork and detail and ability to um, kind of get the ball rolling because it had taken so long to get the document of essentials through. Mm-hmm. Years it took. And all it was was three or four pages long, and it took six years to get them approved. But that was because of the turf wars. People didn't even agree which day of the week it was when you were on that committee. Mm-hmm. And um, eventually it got passed, of course, and then we wanted to move quickly. And we already inherited all the papers that we needed, and we were off and running. So I think it didn't get passed until either very late in 79 or 80, and we credited the first program in 81. Can we talk about how pertinent Horace Thompson's collaboration with the ASUTS was to demonstrating the important role of sonographers' contribution to the clinical application of medical ultrasound? 
Paris was very important because it was the meeting in Denver, Colorado, which was the one, I think, after Cleveland. The AIUM had announced that they'd done enough with education and they were going to turn their meeting over to purely scientific. The AS ASUTS and the AIUM were not meeting at the same time or anything. The ASUTS had not even had a meeting yet. They didn't have that till Philadelphia. Okay. So this was um, a decision by the board of AIUM, um, led by Dennis White, to stop giving educational sessions and to turn the meeting over to scientific content. Horace didn't agree with that, and he was running the meeting. He was the head of running that meeting in Denver. He was from Denver. And so he came to the ASUTS, to myself and to um, LE and a couple of others, and said, this is what had happened. The AIUM had voted against having any more education, and he felt that education was still very necessary. This was 1973, four. Yeah. And so we said, oh, fine, we'll, we'll provide the education. And he said, well, he said, that would be just what I wanted, but it would have to be at 7 o'clock in the morning because the rest of the day had already been taken by the people who were driving the scientific aspects of the meeting. Oh, well, that's all right. We can get up for that. So we got up at 7 o'clock. It was standing room only. I mean, there wasn't a room big enough to house. The whole meeting came to those educational sessions. Well, that had a big impact. First of all, it proved that sonographers could get up and teach. Secondly, it proved that education was still very important and was the driving force of being a member of a society, was to get educated. And it put the AIUM back on its heels and realized that it had to reintroduce education as part of its offering. So it's pretty... Pretty, yeah, that's great. Yeah, monumental. Yeah, that was a, quite the statement to make today. Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah, that's very important. And it also highlighted some things, like Ellie Schnitzer was the first person to record a fetal heart. And he was a sonographer. There's lots of things that sonographers did that were the first that was... And they often didn't get the credit for them. It was given to somebody else, the physician head of the department or something like that. Tell me more about the problem for sonographers being recognized as the authors and published articles in the early 1970s, and how did the acknowledgments change in the JDMS, and which was groundbreaking for ultrasound professionals and researchers? Well, this was in Shirley Stieno's term, and Shirley wrote and published all the work of her department, but it was never, her name was never there. Um, it was Dr. Von Miski. And this upset her, understandably. I mean, she was producing all the material, she was scanning all the patients, and she didn't get an ounce of credit, not even in the acknowledgments. Well, one reaction I have to that is, well, you were writing it, so why didn't you force your way into being at least a co-author? Mm -hmm. I had faced this myself in England many years before, and out of total ignorance, submitted a paper with only my own name on it. And my boss was nowhere to be found on the paper, but in the acknowledgments. And everybody kind of attacked me like, what, you did that? Well, they, I not only did it, they published, they published it. it, so what? 
What do you want to say about so that? So you're saying, surely, I'm sorry, but next time yeah. you need to maybe just Got to do it. Yes, that's right. <laughs> it's always easier to um, do something than ask for, you know, than ask for and ask for forgiveness than it is to ask for permission. <laughs> but um, anyway, um, Shirley was very integral in this. Mm-hmm. I, I wasn't. Mm-hmm. I'd already done that, been there, done that. Yeah. So then there were many others technologists, some of whom got third, fourth, fifth position on the author list, but they wrote the paper and they did whatever it it was that was being covered in the paper. Mm-hmm. Um, and so to form, to open up a journal meant that there was a mechanism for which people who couldn't get recognition now could because they could submit to the journal that was owned by the organization and the society and dictated by its editors what was actually in the journal and that way many sonographers got recognized that would never have been able to get recognized before. And do you feel like that fueled the, um, the, the potential for them to go and do these articles then with, with the recognition? Yes, I, I think it did, and I think that they got the recognition they deserved. They earned it. Um, so they should have got it. Mm-hmm. And um, so I think that was a very important milestone in, in the recognition that you didn't have to have an MD to write a PP. Do you know physicians were also supporting of that? They- oh, yes. I think yeah. physicians generally have been supported on an individual basis. Mm-hmm. But politically, what they can support is another thing. Yeah. You know, when it's an organization, politically, it's, it's hampered a lot more. Mm-hmm. So, Jim Denon, what were his contributions at the first ASCTS meeting? Apparently, in, yeah. In, in Philadelphia. That's what it's Philadelphia, mm-hmm. yeah. Apparently, he was very scared. I didn't know that. But he put on... A great meeting in the first meeting of the ASUTS in combination with the AIUM. We continued that concept of education and science. So ASUTS provided this education for the first, I think it was two days or one and a half days, something like this. And then the AIUM took over and did their scientific thing. And that worked very well. That's good. Yeah, you said he did a tremendous job. So yeah. he was nervous, nervous, but Apparently. didn't let anybody see it. No. So, do you personally know Mimi Berman? Yes. How did uh, she approach the task of becoming the first editor in chief of the JDMS? Well, she was one of the first Dr. Mimi Berman. She was. She was one of the first PhDs in our profession. Very intelligent, highly skilled woman who had great command of the English language, which is saying something in America, but she did. <laughs> And, uh, well, I don't, so it's, it's okay. Yeah. Um, and she was one of the early, if not the first, editors of that journal. And she was very supportive. Shirley Staino and her were close friends, and she was very supportive of that, yes. That's a big role to step into. So I know the competitive desperation between physicians and manufacturers finding trained personnel helped create those overnight wonders where the companies were training individuals to operate machines in a matter of days. In the clinical setting, other staff were also being trained on the job to perform ultrasounds. Did these circumstances encourage the urgency for the ASUTS to establish educational standards and encourage accredited educational programs? I think in looking back, you can say yes they did um 
for obvious reasons. If you've got all these people with all these different backgrounds practicing in your field, you've got no standards, you know, it's not a very good situation. So, retrospectively, yes, but did we think about it then? No. Okay. I know there's a primetime live on ABC special on sonography that was released a while back that I have not yet seen. I was told that the old term technician or technologist finally started to evolve after the airing of that special. Did that feature have an impact on the profession from that time moving forward on the terminology used to describe the person performing ultrasounds? Yes, it was because that forced the the separation uh, because we said, okay, a technician or a technologist is not certified. That's the name for a non-certified person. A certified person is a sonographer. And that was the first time the, pu- the public got the to public hear The public got to hear that and looked f- for it, and it helped make that transition faster and more, deli- you know, there was a reason for everybody to... S- puff out their chest and say, I am a sonographer. It's like when you were an intern, you know, I, we emphasize introducing yourself as a sonographer that's doing the exam mm-hmm. um, rather than... Um, the tech. Yeah, the tech or the trainee. Absolutely. You know, your students had a tendency to be taught by clinical people to say, well, I'm just the... Student. Oh, absolutely. And I'm mine. just the... Yes. You're not just the anything. You know, if you want... I mean, that's, it's not that you're boasting, it's that you are making sure that your patient doesn't leave there saying, oh, I got this, just this little girl to do this. by just mm-hmm. the trainee or yeah. just the student. Absolutely yeah. right. And by that time, we'd still gone through three or four years of college. I mean, it yes. depends on which program you yes. went to. So. Well, I didn't mean that they should get up and lie, but I didn't yeah. want them to say things to like that that yeah. undermines their capability before they've even been tested. You know, That is a really good point. Yeah, and something to remember as we, uh, we have students come through a lot. Yes. For something to say, you know, don't undermine your education. That you, well, the, you the damage through. didn't get done until it went out clinically. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> got a varied input from them. In your opinion, how has the evolution of the partner relationship between the sonographer and the physician changed over the years? Well, as the field expanded, the physician field, the role of the sonographer got harder to recognize because more people came into it, more residents and so on. They didn't expect to have non-physicians teaching them how to do things, but they were, and they were very dependent upon them because they knew that they didn't know what they were looking at, and they knew that the person that did was not the attending physician who they'd have to be embarrassed in front of, Mm -hmm. but this lowly sonographer who could teach them more than they knew. So as it expanded, there was that respect, but that respect was difficult as the field got larger and larger to um, recognize because, you know, it wasn't a typical role. It was an atypical role. Mm-hmm. And maybe I was expecting you to say, as the, I maybe was expecting a different answer. I think I was expecting to say that that partner role became more apparent, that the physician no, relied on that. became weaker. became weaker. So I think that... Because images became more self-explanatory at the same time. So, mm-hmm. you know, back in 1970s, when we scanned a fetus, it didn't look like a fetus. 
So you've had to interpret Today, you've got the member of the public is telling you what the fetus looks like, <laughs> you know, so it's a yes. bit different. From 1970 to 1980, you talk about the decade of ultrasound engineering and technology exploding at an exponential rate. Can you tell us how it was from your perspective and what it was like in the world of ultrasound research at that time? Those of us that have been in it a while didn't really embrace it at first because it was hard. It was, it was called change, and change was always difficult to accept. And it was big change. It wasn't simple. We went from bistable, which is a, an oscilloscope that stores an image, to um, a TV raster or a grayscale, and then real time, which was only a pie shape, a little segment of what we used to see the whole abdomen so people weren't in a rush to get rid of their old methods and they weren't in a rush to change because we were just starting to get good at what we were doing with the old stuff and they came in with all this new stuff who needs 64 shades of gray my eyes can't determine 64 shades gray you know so it was not a, an easy transition for those of us who'd been around. For the new guys on the block, just like new technology today, how many two-year-olds don't know how to run a smartphone? How many 20, 30-year-olds don't know how to run a smartphone? There's a lot of difference in those numbers. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, it was that, that sort of a technology mm -hmm. trans, trans, um, transition. Yeah. It wasn't easy. Yeah. But important to embrace that change in the end. Well, yeah, because the companies failed to continue to produce the old stuff. Yeah. So you had Where to. did my V scanner go? Yeah. Well, we got rid of it. <laughs> yeah, well, it wouldn't repair it anymore, and after yeah. that, then that was it. No more parts for that. No more parts. <laughs> you were obviously a witness to so much change, and so much change so quickly while you worked in the profession. How is this an essential quality of a sonographer to be able to accept change as it comes and allow for growth within the field? It's an essential part of life. Well put. And as we know, on the contrary, with growth and change, there can also be that resistance as well. What were some moments of resistance that you can recall? What was one specific thing that you really hated to see go? A complete image mm -hmm. of what you scan versus a pie-shaped wedge. Mm -hmm. The fact that it moved. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was a big change, um, which could be problematic. Um, the size of the equipment the size of the room that was necessary to put it in and the amount of room it took mm -hmm. to scan. Yeah, those were some huge... Yeah, huge those were huge. From taking a whole room to being able to fit six or seven systems, yes. you know, in a room. And I'm guessing Acceptance perhaps, of the technology. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. I'm guessing perhaps, too, how the image was captured or stored. I mean, that was a big... Oh, yes. Thing. From yeah. Polaroid to films mm -hmm. to large films to pack systems and all those changes horrendous changes yeah i'm sure it wasn't always easy well then in your opinion what kind of qualities does a leader possess to help encourage others around them to push through and continue to grow in those times of change that we all must face I think an effective, strong leader needs to be surrounded by people of like mind who are loyal and buy into the changes that need to be made. 
It's also difficult to handle what is called Monday morning quarterbacks. These are people who wait until the change is made and then come in to criticise it or to tear it apart. The other attribute you must have is a strong leader is to be flexible, be willing to listen to other people suggestion other people's suggestions and to take them into account as much as you can this way you will you will broaden your support um, base i always believed that the strongest supporter was the convert um, i am a, um, also a believer that you must earn the respect of your peers in order to lead them and you have to find a way to be right most of the time as um, failures are not easily tolerated. Change means getting used to something that is different than what one has experienced in the past. And you have to start out with a group of cohorts that agree with you and build on that group and have them go out as ambassadors to the field at large and gradually win them over until you have a fair-sized group of supporters who can then carry the ball, so to speak, until you've won over your profession. I felt that I was always very lucky that I had um, a cadre of supporters around me and no one can accomplish something alone. You have to have this in order to be successful. So, Joan, I'd like to transition to the topic of musculoskeletal injury within the field of sonography. Uh, some people might think of job-related injury as the acute type that you get you know, moving a patient or a piece of equipment, but I think most sonographers, when hearing job-related injury, will relate to sonographer's shoulder or carpal tunnel or some other uh, repetitive stress injury that they've experienced because of um, performing ultrasounds. So can I ask you, when did you first recognize the need for ergonomics concerns within the field? I was aware of something that Marvin named sonographer's shoulder, but really aware that we had a major problem was 1995. And um, I was asked to give a talk at the um, SDMS meeting in Palm Desert? Palm Springs. Palm Springs, mm. 1995, and um, on stress in the workplace. And my mind immediately thought of, you know, an, a, a schedule that never seemed to be the, the schedule yes. that took place and those types of stresses. Stress. And um, a graduate of mine called me in about February for a conference in the fall mm -hmm. and said, um, uh, what, are I, what was I going to talk about? Well, I've never had a call like that before and haven't since, actually. <laughs> but um, uh, she patiently listened to what I said off the top of my head because I really had no idea at that time what I was going to say and then she said well can I tell you what stress in the workplace means to me and I said well certainly what she said well uh, it's I'm injured from it and I wasn't totally shocked because I knew about the sonographer's shoulder but she was an echocardiographer and she was talking about a carpal tunnel injury and I said, well, I'm sorry to hear that, because she was a graduate of mine from Seattle U. And um, so that sort of ended that conversation. And about two months later, I got another call from somebody, and it was the same thing. What are you going to talk about? Because I'm injured. 
And I made the mistake of saying, oh, um, well, if you know anybody else that's injured, please have them call me. Because then I could see that maybe I was missing the point and we could stress in the workplace meant something different to who the audience would be than what I had envisioned was what they wanted. So uh, the phone rang off the hook all summer. And very, very distraught people on the phone and a lot of trouble. And I realized then. So I went to um, Gwen Grimm, who was the executive director of SDMS at the time. And she was the man, you know, she had hired and fired and done all that human resource stuff. So I said, well, would you give half of the talk about... um, stress in the workplace and I'll give the other half on this new subject that has come up occupational injury and that's exactly what happened Um, and that was the first time it had really gone you know to a larger audience Um, Marvin had actually identified it and it seemed to go away when we had articulated arm scanning you could make sense out of your shoulder hurting because it was hanging out there mm-hmm. oscillating the transducer all the time um, and then when we went to real time it just seemed to disappear but then it came back with a vengeance after that mm-hmm. and so we were talking about 1980 that we went to real time and it took until about 1990 to identify it for sure and by 95 we it was no question Then um, in Canada, they had uncovered this in a questionnaire that they'd sent out to their members and CSDMS, Canadian Society, and um, in British Columbia, in Vancouver, they had decided to do a big survey of all sonographers, but they didn't have enough sonographers in Canada Mm -hmm. to have good statistics, so Mm -hmm. they came to the SDMS and asked if they would join and we did, and it was easy because it was an hour and a half drive north for me, and I went to all their committee meetings, and we came up with a questionnaire, and SDMS financially supported that. Mm-hmm. cost quite a lot of money, actually, to mail all of that because we didn't have as much uh, computer access as we do now. And um, we, had, um, we, we were told we had to get about a 1,000 responses in order to have... Um, good solid data to Mm -hmm. use Um, it was 125 questions 23 page long questionnaire and of course the word on the street was if you didn't have an injury before you filled it out you did by the time you were done (laughs) but we got also a lot of them back from people who we hadn't sent them to we went to the AARDMS and they kindly let us randomly select from the database Mm -hmm. the people that were to receive it so that was a very big study. Mm-hmm. 3,000, I think, received it, something like that, and we got just about 1,000 back, which is a pretty good return rate on a 23-page questionnaire. But we had to throw away anybody's, any that was, we could tell whether it was been Xerox or copied. Mm-hmm. We had to throw those away because they would have infected the statistics of... of the numbers. The numbers, yeah. yeah. So, you know, it was true. Some people said, oh, well, the only people that would fill it out were the people that were injured. Therefore, the numbers would be 
very high. Mm -hmm. Well, we did a regression, or they, we had a statistician who knew what he was doing, and mm -hmm. he did a regression on it, and that wasn't true. The case. Yeah. No. It was just that there were really yeah. that many injuries. And then we used so, right. that actual exact same instrument in foreign countries as well, and mm. because they came to us, yeah. so we did it in Australia and UK, and those numbers were higher than ours. They were. Yes, they were in the 90s when ours were in the 80s. Oh. The result of that survey for how many people were occupationally injured it came out to be 81% uh, in America. US mm -hmm. and 87% in Canada. So what you see in print is 84%, which is the average of those two. And what did you guys attribute? Did you ever figure out why it was higher in Australia and Canada than the US? Um, I think so, because, um, well, not antidotally, not mm -hmm. proven to be, mm -hmm. but we decided that uh, it wasn't a based on number, it's based on transducer time. Okay. And we didn't have that data. We still don't, really. Um, but, um, as I say, in these foreign countries where they interpret as well as perform, which is what is true in England and in Australia, um, they don't do as... M they do many more patients. Okay. But so the head, can, exams but faster exams, mm -hmm. and they go from one to the other faster, and so it comes down to really how long Numbers. are you holding that transducer, yeah. and everything we do to reduce transducer time, pack systems and things like this, are increasing our injury rate because yeah. they're causing us to have time to hold the transducer more. Yeah. Okay. So, and the longer the study in length, the more you 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 um, are affected. Or in Australia's case, the number of exams. Yes, you're number doing, of exams. Even yes, if you're, you're speeding through them because you're interpreting. Yes. you're doing more. And we're also seeing injury from the PAC systems. Mm. That you know the departments were put together before there were PAC systems, and mm. there's nowhere to put the PACs, so they look for a, a counter anywhere to to put it, and so when the sonographer's done taking pictures, they're then sitting in front of a a very um, you know, not mm -hmm. a very ergonomic. A workstation sure. and this is causing more injury mm. sure yeah so after you gave that original talk at the meeting yes. did you have people coming up to you and at that meeting what were the what was the response from your talk there was an awful lot of people in tears yeah i bet and uh then later the exam committee came to me and said well could i do a half day tutorial on occupational injury and um where was that i think I want to say it was in Dallas. And I said, yes, but if I'm going to do a half day, I want to do it hands-on. Yeah. So um, they said, okay. And I said, well, I think I could get about 25 people around one machine and, and one bed. Mm -hmm. So let's have to limit the, the this to, uh, it's before the ARDMS meeting, no, mm -hmm. the SDMS meeting started. Okay. Uh, it was so the like day early, before. Oh, the day before, okay. And they had these different tutorials. It was the the style of the of the annual meeting. And um, so I said 25. Well, I don't think anybody heard me because the... It was like a hundred. Um, what happened was the... Um, I went to um, Agilent, which was a company then that was eventually bought by ATL. But... Mm -hmm. um, 
anyway, they I asked them if I could borrow the machine that they were shipping to um, the conference. to the conference mm-hmm. to use. Mm-hmm. Oh, sure. And another company donated some chairs and another company some beds. One, one bed, one chair, you know. Oh, you don't want any more? No, that's fine. I just need one. And so about August time, because the meeting was in, I think, September, early August, late July, early August, I happened to phone the office and they said, oh, your tutorial is going really well. I said, what do you mean it's going really well? Well, we've got 36 signed up so far. I said, 36? I said we couldn't do more than 25. I can't get 36 people around one machine. Let me see what I can do. So I'm frantically calling another company, asking could they donate a piece of equipment? Oh, yes, we'd, we'd love to, you know. And um, I got another table from the table company, another chair from the chair company. So now we had two, and we're going along fine. And they they then said, well, we've now got 70 people. And I said... <laughs> so I went to a third company, and I got a third one and I got the same and when the actual day came I had 84 oh my goodness and um, what we did was um, Carolyn Coffin had done her master's thesis on occupational injury and so she was on the board and I got permission from the board president who was I think Steve McLaughlin to um, allow me to pull Carolyn out of the board meeting because I pulled myself out anyway to help me with this because it had swollen so big and then that night I got a phone call from Susan Murphy who was a graduate of mine from Seattle U and she was two years she'd been trying to recover from an injury in her shoulder Mm -hmm. and she'd just been told she could no longer do ultrasound and Mm -hmm. she was just devastated And she wanted to know what she could do. And I said, you could get on a plane and come down here and help me run this symposium. Because now I had this large number of people. Yes. And I said, you've just come through it. You know, you're you a, have a lot to give. You have you something to, to give. give. And yeah. So she came down and shared my room and helped me helped us too. And so that was 80 people in there. 84, yes. Oh, my goodness. So that's the long story. So on the, at the very end of that very first talk, was it more of uh, just bringing the statistics from the survey, or did you have a take-home message about... Well, we had half injury. a day, so we had a bit more than, than just the, the results. Okay. Um, yeah. Uh, and, of course, it, it was very well attended, and it was very... Um, apparently very valuable to the people that got it. And we hope that SDMS would be able to take up this um, cause and address it. But their agenda was really full, legislatively trying to get the care bill through these types of things. They had a full agenda, and they really couldn't devote the time. And Susan, who had no career now because had been taken away, said, well, what are we going to do? I said, well, let's just form a company. And, sure, and that's how and, Sound And that's ergonomics. how Sound Ergonomics came to be. Yeah. I said, I think I was going to do this about a year or two from now, so let's just do it earlier. That's great. And, so Susan um, has worked with you guys since Yes, then. originally, and then mm-hmm. she left, um, and uh, there's Carolyn and I. Mm-hmm. Have been doing it. Yeah. So doing what it. is your, when you have a new student or somebody potentially talking to you about going into the field, what is it that you educate them about, um, about the job-related injury involved? 
we don't do a lot because you know if somebody is excited and they want to get into a field it's a bit tough to sit them down and start telling them what they need to be careful of but you kind of look at the person to be honest and you look about their age you look at their fingers as they're talking to you and see whether they look like they've got arthritis in them or something like that if they do you might go a little bit more into detail because if they've already got arthritis they're probably going to have a problem with it Um, if eventually after a few years of doing it we did get to trying to alert students who were coming into the field but we didn't select students based on whether they said they did or didn't have any sort of pre pre pre-existing conditions or anything like that we had to leave that up to their decision but at least we informed them. Now, I think if you look at um, dental hygiene or something like that, that's very clearly specified. You won't be able to do this as a full-time job. And, you know, they go into great detail because they have such a high incidence. Mm-hmm. But our incidence is 90%. You can't get much higher. Exactly. So you feel duty-bound to say something. Yeah. It's more than just somebody is large because we know that some large people aren't that hard to scan. Absolutely. And other large people you can't scan. They're, they're just a snow picture. So, you know, it's... It, I'm not sure it's just size, but we do know that it's um, static posture. Sure. We do know that it's pressure um, and things like this. Do you guys encourage the people both sit and stand while they scan? Yeah, any variety that you can bring to it, probably, sure. you know, you share the load, but you do that sooner as a student. Don't do it later when yes. you've already trashed one side and go and trash the other side of your body. Because yes. eventually you'll retire and then you'll be, yes. you know, in pain. Yeah, and I can personally say it's probably pretty important for clinical instructors or people in, for, it was very important that my clinical instructor had stressed, you know, try and change position, mm-hmm. let go of the probe, uh, all those things, the tips that they can give you as a student that you yeah. start early before you do get Well, your you're very lucky because we discovered that it was the clinical instructors that were usually undoing what we had taught in the classroom. Mm-hmm. And they, because they had got into teaching because... They couldn't scan anymore, but they didn't. But they forgot why. They, they forgot. Scan they forgot why. <laughs> yeah. So um, it was more like, well, who taught you to do it that way? We do it this way here. Yeah. Mind you, all of my staff are injured. Didn't come out in the in exactly. the, the end of that sentence. Exactly. But there were many others who had been injured and who were very dedicated at making sure that their students didn't do what they had done or get what yeah. they had done. Yes. I mean, I'm not trying to paint a picture of people who are interested only in getting the whole field to suffer, but yes. But it is hard. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I've, I've personally known people who went all the way through the programs and decided not to go into scanning, whether they went into applications or something else because they were really worked really worried about the longevity of their career and their body. Well, my advice to people like that is to grow with the field. So to go into the clinical Mm -hmm. right away and do some clinical, because if you don't do any at all, then going into other areas is not necessarily as easy for you. Yeah. I mean, you don't have a a resume that will take you there. Yeah. Yeah. So So employing things like sound ergonomics and the, the tools that they give people... And do you guys go around and uh, to teaching institutions and do, you know, sit in and do a day on ergonomics? With yeah, students? we do. Um, but we find that, you know, programs don't always have the budget to allow for that. Not that we 
charge an arm and a leg, but, but, but they one. still have to yeah. get us there yeah. and um, devote the time. And I mean, we work on all aspects of it. From we help design the equipment, we help design the control panel, mm -hmm. so that it will reduce hopefully the injury rate. But then the companies are trying to get that price tag shaved as much as they can as low as they can and very often these little bells and whistles that make it a little easier have to be the things that go yes um and all the companies claim to be addressing ergonomics and they're all very genuine in their desire to yeah but they have to also satisfy the marketplace and the people that are buying the machines aren't necessarily the people that are using them and yes. the importance of you know, there's there's a tendency to say, well, there's another one where that one came from, rather than sure. saying, I don't want this one to add to my expenses and occupational injury. Yeah, for sure. And um, it's a hard uh, sell. Yeah. But, you know, for $10,000, $12,000, you could equip completely an ultrasound room and, and a department with all the ergonomic things that are available and of course, then the, the sonographers got to use them. I mean, yes. there's no point in buying them if they don't use yes. them. Mm -hmm. um, whereas a one occupational injury is way more than ten thousand dollars. But it's a question of who writes the check. Yeah, and if they're going to be proactive. Or yes. Put on the back end. And usually, yeah. the the hospital or institution suffers pretty heavily before they turn to really looking at the problem and and addressing it. Early. Yeah. 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 So what, what did, uh, job injuries did you deal with in your career? Well, I um, ruptured three discs onto my spinal cord uh, lifting a patient with an ambulance man in 1965. So very so, early on. So rather early, yeah. but it wasn't related to actually scanning itself. So. Yeah, but one, one of those more job-related where they tell you about... Oh yes. Posture to pick people up or support people. And yeah, well, actually, this was an ambulance man. It turned out he had been on the job a few hours, not even an eight-hour shift. It was his first shift. And when you go to lift, you go one, two, three, lift. We went one, two, and on three he lifted, and I didn't, of course. And he dumped the patient on onto me, and I tried to save them hitting the floor. So I hit the floor, and the patient hit the stretcher. And then how long did that repair, how long did it take you to come back from that? I was in the hospital for six months. Oh, goodness. Yeah. Yeah. At, and then if you had suffered a lot of chronic pain from the... I have, actually, illness, but yeah. I know how to deal with it, so, mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. But so, but your shoulder and stuff... No, that was all, that stayed intact. <laughs> <laughs> Is that why you've had your hand in a lot of the education, so maybe not on the probes? <laughs> yes, I, I didn't make the association of occupational injury from with sonography, really, until 1995, so I've been... A, doing it for a while by that 30 some years by then <laughs> 35 all right well let's go on that that's a super interesting I, I feel like so many people will be interested in that subject because like you said oh um, yes um, and it's interesting that it's higher in the countries that are you know you said you can make the exam shorter when you can interpret your own exam but the problem is you open up your schedule for Yes. How many more patients? And a lot of know. ultrasound is and pack systems were sold on this. Oh, it's faster, faster, faster. You get more patients, get more patients. Well, that's maybe true, but you've got to watch you 
you're around to scan more patients. Yeah. You what know? are your thoughts on the volume acquisition and um, post-processing instead of uh, in eliminating scanning time? It's all right as long as everything you do is ergonomic. Mm -hmm. You can't do these other things if you don't do them ergonomically. And that means everything from the knobs being the right um, tactile and, you know, um, feel so that you grip, you you can do them without having a pinch grip or you sit down to a computer and you don't end up with your neck being Mm -hmm. damaged and things like this or you your mouse far away from your body, you might as well be holding a transducer as pushing the mouse. It's yeah. it's all really the actual ergonomic position and the workstation yeah. and, and so on. It's the whole package, not just what you're doing. Yeah. I know standing desks are a huge um, yes. fad right now. Or, uh, you know, or the ability, the, the, really the ones there, are the ability to make it a standing desk or the ability to change it mm-hmm. so that you can vary it during the sure. day instead of... Um, her, instead of having you know. to make a choice to completely yes. stand or, or sit. And this is very true in a radiology office or s- similar because they have multiple physicians who are all different sizes and shapes, to say nothing of different sexes, and vertically challenged and very tall. And unless you can have the adjustability, yeah. you can't make that a workstation for everybody. yeah. Yeah. But how many places do or yeah. try? Mm-hmm. And there's over 60% um, occupational injury in maternal fetal medicine mm-hmm. because so many maternal fetal medicine physicians do all their own scanning. Yeah, they do. They do a lot of yes. afterwards. Yes, so they have a very high incidence. Of- do you think going to the heads of the companies or the directors of the facilities that own it, whether it's the physicians or the hospital, and talking to them about, you know, eliminating, employing their, you know, getting in in the front of it and grabbing more ergonomic products and um, systems in the beginning will help eliminate the disability mm-hmm. I don't know. It's so difficult because the administration varies considerably as to how they accept this and how they handle it and how they deal with it. Mm -hmm. To some people, it's, oh, fire them and get another one. Um, Injure that one, get another one. Mm -hmm. Um, That costs them money, quite a bit of money sometimes, Um, versus other administrators who will purchase all of it and then the sonographer drops the ball and doesn't use the equipment that has been purchased for them or they are under so much stress to get the patients done and through that they um they they kind of put the ergonomics on the back burner um or they want to go home at five o'clock every night and so they do add-ons in lunchtime and give themselves no relief yes and when you do things like that you don't help the yourself or your co-workers because the the institution doesn't know that you are in that predicament they just know you brilliantly knocked off 25 patients that day and they just hope you can do it again tomorrow yeah or maybe if you've done 25 you can do 26 that's exactly right (laughs) yeah and no and you are you know you you did that to yourself yeah you can probably justify another part-time or full-time person if you had done what was sensible, which would have been 10. Yes. Or 12. Mm-hmm. 
depending on what they are. Yes, it's allowing your body to recover between studies that's the best thing. If you don't allow that, then you've got an awful lot of stress for for a lot, you know, one day after the other, it all accumulates, it adds up. That's why they used to call it cumulative trauma disorder. Yes. It accumulates. Yeah, it seems like the best solution then would be educating educating the, the soon-to-be sonographers as they're going through their programs and the teachers teaching the programs about talking about ergonomics early on, also getting the employers on board early on yeah. to get the equipment mm-hmm. and keep the... Um, schedule to to, mm-hmm. work, to the minimum that it needs to be to get you know in what they need to but then also having the sonographers follow through with using the equipment um, mm-hmm. taking heed doing exercises yes. um, that they need to keep themselves healthy and knowing when to say no I mean, I yeah like that, that. that when you first graduate and you go and join an institution you're the last hired least qualified, you're the most vulnerable. Absolutely. You want to get your loans paid back and you're ready to do call for the whole city and you'll do it every night of the week and you you know, yes. you want to work twelve hour days yes. and have a little another job on the side. Yes. And this is not the picture for saving you injury. This is a no. picture for making you an no. injured mm-hmm. sonographer. Mm-hmm. By the time you've gone through that and the denial that goes with it you find out that you have joined the ranks of the injured sonographers Absolutely. and you can't find a quick way back mm-hmm. um, because every time you scan, you you feel it, even if it's to a lesser degree than you did before. Mm-hmm. So it, it's not a, a very good picture. And if you add to that a little bit of administrative reluctance to force you to do something that's right or make you at least... You know, when you go each year, you have to look at the HIPAA rules and you have to look at that. Maybe you ought to have to look at the ergonomic rules of your department. And if you get injured, then you're not going to be supported by by um, OSHA yes. if you don't sign off on doing certain things. I mean, yeah, you know, you start to encourage punitive activity, but it's a force on trying to get everybody to comply. For their own um, good. For their own good, Absolutely. but, you know, it's yeah. difficult to say that. Well, I hope they can get there, because that's a good point, that there should be an, you know, an evaluation of your ergonomic... I mean, I know our lead tries to evaluate us on our scan time and, and our scan position, and that was passed down from the lead that was in charge mm-hmm. before, but not maybe all people care yes. whether they're sitting or standing right with their patient as well as, well as if they're getting the protocol. Well, one of the worst things is is the um, the schedule. Yeah. And um, uh, are you self-paced? Meaning? Yeah, not everybody knows what that means. Yeah. Self-paced means that you run your department so that your sonographers go and scan a patient, and when they're done and they've done all the things that they need to do, they then go and get the next patient. Hmm. That's a self-paced department. Okay. Uh, the other type of department is you're given a list in the morning of who you are going to scan that day, and of course you're subject to add-ons as well. Yes. And you've got that list now. The problem with that is, is you don't. Nobody really knows ahead of time how long a particular patient is going to yeah. take. Mm-hmm. And there's only so many hours in the day, so are you going to take some time from one to give to another or whatever? But you've only got this this 
group of, of people, this list of people. And so that produces a lot of stress if you get behind that. And when you're stressed, you, you tense up your muscles and you're trying to hurry and you, you don't always do things that are save you time. You often spin your wheels doing trying to speed up and things like that and to have that added stress. So to me, a self-paced lab is probably the best way to go. The only other issue is that sometimes you have a lab where you've got a couple of real go-getter type sonographers who just love to knock through the cases and they do they enjoy it and they do it very well. And then you've got a couple of others that like to watch them. <laughs> and when you've got that type of dynamic going on, you kind of have to find a way to make everybody do an even share. Absolutely. And that's what forces you into the, well, here's your list and here's your list. And um, hopefully then that, you know, they can eventually get to more of the self-paced yeah. approach. Yeah. At least that's what I would be my advice would be to go for self-pacing. All right, you guys, that's going to do it for part three with Joan. We'll be back with one more part, part four, next episode. And until then, take care.